Hello, world. I'm delighted to have my friend, ad man, writer, author, Pete Mercurial on the Flex. Good morning, Pete. Hey, good morning, Dean. How are you? I'm doing well. So how has 2020 been treating you? Probably just like everybody else. Uh, it's been a rough year. I, although I was never officially diagnosed with COVID, I've had some health issues this year that have been kind of challenging, but uh, nothing compared to how uh, other people have been challenged by the virus. So you and I have worked together at different ad agencies. Uh, it's been many years. You were a part of my, my lottery pool that I was running. <laughs> and if anyone from the IRS is listening, <laughs> I definitely pay taxes on the, any winnings. I don't, think, <laughs> so, I don't think we ever won. Yeah, I know. I, know. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. I was like, I'd walk over and give Dean a couple of bucks every week to get into the lottery pool. A couple of fake dollars, right, right Pete? Can we write off those? Can we get taxes back on the money we uh, spent on the lottery? That's a good question. You know, I'm going to have someone from IRS on an upcoming episode, and we'll we'll ask that person. Yeah, that's good. So let's jump into your amazing stories. Serendipity is the theme of this episode. So I'm going to lay the groundwork, and then you could fill in the the details. Danny, your boyfriend at the time, you guys were dating for a few years at Mm -hmm. the time. He was in the ACE in Chelsea. The ACE is one of the worst subways in in New York City. (laughs) To those that are not privy to New York transportation. But at the time, I mean, this was, and you could tell me the year, but this was years ago. It was a dangerous time back then on the subway. So Danny was in the subway. He thought he saw a doll mm-hmm. and it happened to be a baby, right? Yeah, he was He was uh, leaving the subway station. It was August 28th, 2000. Um, he was actually coming to meet me for dinner. He had gone up to his apartment in uh, Morningside Heights to pick up his mail because he was subletting that apartment and staying staying with me um, for a while. And on his way back, he exited the subway station at uh, 15th Street and 8th Avenue. And so that whole station runs from 14th to 16th. And the 15th Street is an exit only. So there was no, back then there was no token booth at that location. You need to have to go to 14th or 15th. And so that was a sort of a rarely, not widely used exit. And as he was leaving, they were at that point just installing metro card boxes and so you couldn't enter at that station just yet and around the corner from around the corner from the uh the metro box that they were installed and were installing was this little bundle uh of uh a black sweatshirt with legs sticking out of it which he assumed was a doll and he kept you know going to the up the stairs to exit the station and he took one last last look back and he saw the legs uh wiggle and move so he knew that it wasn't a doll and he, he ran down there and loosened up the sweatshirt around the baby's you know head to make sure it was still breathing and he was and he noticed that there was still part of the umbilical cord attached oh wow um but the baby seemed to be and it was cold right it was December morning no okay. it was actually august 28th and oh, it was okay. it was uh it was eight o'clock at night but it was it was an unseasonably cool evening and so it was not hot at all. I remember when I ran, when he called me and I ran down there to, to be with him that I was still wearing shorts from the day sort of being warm. And when I got down there, it was mm. breezy and cold and it was not cold. I mean, for August it was cold, but it was probably just like 60, 68 degrees or something like that. So the police were called and they came down. So he called the police first, you know, he didn't have a cell phone. So he actually ran up to the payphone on the street and he called the, he called 911 first. And then went down, back down to be with the baby. And while he was waiting, he thought that it was taking a long time and that maybe uh, they didn't believe him. And uh, maybe he, he thought that maybe it was a prank call. So he had a quarter in his pocket and he ran back up and called me and said, I found the baby. And, you know, I didn't believe him at first. And I didn't, it was weird. It was just a weird way to start a telephone call. And so, 
Um, once I realized he wasn't joking, I said, I'm going to run down, I'll come down there and I'll try to flag a police car on the street or find a, a cop on the sidewalk or something. By the time I got down there, the police were there and they were actually carrying the baby up from the subway station up the steps. And so it was kind of amazing to be standing there and watching this unbelievable sort of event unfold right in front of our eyes. They named the baby Danny Ace Doe yeah. Ace for, for the ACE. And Danny for Danny, for the person who found him. From that point, how did you keep in contact? Because I'm assuming the point from discovering the baby to going to court was a long time. We went on with our lives. We were not, we didn't think that we would ever see the baby again. I mean, there was an, I had a, a brief moment on the sidewalk while we were waiting for the baby to, to be transported to the hospital, I said, to, I did say to Danny, I said, I think you're going to be connected to this baby in one way or another for the rest of your life. And he was sort of still in a state of shock from all the events that happened. He said, what do you mean? And I said, uh, maybe not next month or next year or within five years, but someday the baby is going to hear about the story of how he was found. And he may want to reach out and try to find the person who discovered him. And so, you know, you're, and we're probably always going to think about what happened to this kid. But after that night, we went on with our lives and didn't really give it much thought. It was really the, the fall of 2000 between August and December of that year was probably the one of the busiest times of our lives. I ha was, had just started a theater company that year and we were producing our second show in October. And not only was I producing my second show in October, my sister was running for Congress. She was nominated by the Democrats uh, to run for Congress in New Jersey's 5th Congressional District. And I was one of her campaign advisors and managers. So Danny and I were super busy. He was helping me and we were trying to get the show up. At the same time, we were out in New Jersey doing all kinds of campaign events constantly. So we had really no time at all that fall. And what happened was about six weeks later in mid-October, he got a call from an administration for children's services attorney. She had the police report and she was looking for him, uh, looking for Danny. And she only had his name. There was no telephone number, no address. So she started, she wanted to get in touch with him because they were starting a hearing in family court about trying to place the baby into a, a pre-adoptive foster home. But first they were going to have a trial to discuss how the baby was found. And they wanted to hear from Danny. So for about a few weeks, she combed through the white pages and called hundreds of Danny Stewart's in the white pages until she found him, which is part of the story that a lot of people don't know, that if she didn't have that perseverance in doing that and had never found him, we would not be parents today. So cut to December when they actually do have the hearing, Danny goes down to testify. Um, and he just thinks he's going in to tell the story about how he found the baby and the events of that night. And the judge asks him if he can stick around for the rest of the hearing. And, you know, he's on his lunch break. And so he sort of says, well, I have to get back to work. And she says, it's not going to take very long. You know, I, I'd really like for you to stick around. So the detective and a police officer from that night testify and they're done in like two or three minutes and the judge turns to Danny and says, uh, Mr. Stewart, I just want to let you know that uh, what's happening here in cases where we have a healthy newborn abandoned baby, we want to place them in a pre-adoptive foster home as quickly as possible. And Danny, Danny's thinking, yeah, that makes sense because he's a social worker. He, he realizes that that is probably what is in the best interest of the child. And the next thing she asks is, would you be interested in adopting him? On the spot. On the spot had no inclination, no one in the courtroom, not the 
foster care agency uh, caseworker, not the legal aid attorney that represented the baby, not the attorney from Administration for Children's Services. Nobody expected her to do that. He paused for a moment and he said, yes, but I know it's not that easy. And she said, well, it can be. And the next thing he knew, she was uh, issuing directives for a home study to begin to clear his home or our home. She didn't even know what our home situation was. You know, she mm-hmm. just said, let's get a home study started. And please set up a visit for Danny to go visit the baby in his current foster home. That's incredible. Do you know the, the steps normally that it takes, the amount of time for, yeah. for situations like this? Uh, we didn't at the time, um, but we, we do know now that that was an extraordinary circumstance in a situation where she was, we found out like 10 years later that she was uh, authorized to to expedite it like that so quickly. And she was the only family judge in New York City that was allowed to do that. There was a, um, we had found out years later that there was a pilot program in effect for a very short period of time. And we just happened to fall in that window where she was allowed to expedite and cut through a lot of red tape in cases where there was a a healthy newborn infant to almost make sure they do not languish in the foster care system and to get them into a pre-adoptive home as quickly as possible. That's amazing. She was one of how many judges? There had to be hundreds of judges in New York and she was the only one. Yeah, she was the judge that was was in charge of that program. We didn't know that. We didn't know any of that at the time. When we were able to talk to her about 10 years later, we asked her about it. And that's when she um, revealed to us that this program was in effect Mm -hmm. just for a short period of time. And we just happened to fall Kevin happened, just happened to be, Kevin's our son, Daniel Listo, we named him Kevin later, happened to be found and fall within the window of that program. And this happened a few days before Christmas. And this book, for the listeners out there, this is a great book for the holidays. In these times where there's so much divisiveness going on, it's such a feel-good story that good holiday gift. Yeah, it's very, it's actually very much a holiday gift because he was basically our holiday gift in 2000. Yeah. You know, we went, after we visited with him and then we went to court, I think it was Wednesday, December 20th in 2000 to state our intention that we were going to both, you know, we both wanted to be his parents and adopt him. She just surprised us again and said, how would you like a holiday visit with him? We, you know, we didn't want to say no to the judge. So we just nodded our heads and said yes. And then she started issuing directives again to the other people in charge of the baby's welfare to have him ready for us to pick up Friday morning. So we were in court that Wednesday and then we had a baby in our lives that Friday. She was a stork. She was the figurative stork. <laughs> yes, she was. Yes, she was. I never. You're the first person that's ever made that kind of uh, analogy. And this story being a holiday feel-good story, I was thinking this could be. I'm assuming that you have thought about this as you have a nonprofit theater group, Other Side Productions, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. Yes. Give you a plug on that. This could be not even a lifetime movie, but it could be a Netflix movie. It could be a play. There's a lot of legs here. Have you thought about that? Yes, uh, there's. There have been discussions. I'll just leave it at that. So we'll see. Uh, We'll see. All these things are, all these type of things have to be negotiated and we, everything has to be approved or okayed by all three of us. So in other words, you know, this is also Kevin's life. Mm, Um, He he has to be okay with anything being out there that's about him. So right now he's in college and that's what he wants to focus on. And so for the time being, there's no definite plans for any kind of uh, movie, film or or stage uh, theater thing. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. If you need an actor to play you, (laughs) I was thinking Ed Norton could be one. I'd put the thought in. I think that's a great (laughs) idea. Throw some more ideas at me. But remember, 
so remember, I have to be so at the time, uh, Ed Norton would be great to play me today. But at yeah. the time the baby was found, I was in my early 30s. Okay. So he may not he might be a little bit too old for that now. So think of think of an actor now that's in their in their early 30s. Or in that age range, yeah. Just put me in the credit. Send me some names. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll get a thank you. <laughs> so you and Danny got married several years after that, and she, she was a presiding judge for that too. Yeah. So two years after Kevin was placed in our home, our uh, adoption was finalized, and that was also in December, and that was December of 2012, and that was the last time we saw her. And ten years later, when New York State legalized same-sex marriage, we, Danny and I, talked about getting married, and took us six months to nine months to sort of say, yeah, let's do this. Cause we already felt like we were married. We felt like we lived a married life and that we were sort of married through our child because we were both his parents, you know, on his birth certificate. And, and we didn't really feel the need to formalize it. We decided to do it. So on a walk to school, uh, after D Danny and I decided that we would get married, I was walking Kevin to school. I said, your dad, dad and I are going to get married. What do you think? He said, I think it's a great idea. And he just said, don't judges marry people. And I kind of knew where he was, what he was getting at. And he knew that judges married people because he was seeing all the news footage on TV of, you know, same sex couples getting married by a lot of judges. So he knew his story. He knew that a judge was involved in his story and how we became a family. So I knew immediately what he was getting at. And I said, would you want to meet the judge that finalized your adoption? And he just like was so excited when I asked yeah. that he said, yes. And I got home and I wrote, uh, an email to the general family Manhattan family court email address I found online reminding them who we were, who the judge was when we were in the family court. And two hours later, I got a response saying, of course, we remember you. Of course, the judge remembers you. And she'd be delighted to officiate your ceremony. So we got married and yeah, it was kind of cool. We got married in July of 2012. I don't know who the judge is, but just on top of my head, just thinking Ellen Pompeo. Mm, nice. Dean is casting the entire movie. I love this. <laughs> I'm a producer. That's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we do. Do you have CSA? Is it CSA credits? Is that the casting yeah. society? Yeah, okay. So we, we talked about Danny, your husband, uh, mm -hmm. and the the landmark law of same-sex marriages allowing that. Last week, and we talked about this before we got on, last week was National Coming Out Day. I forget what day it was, but mm -hmm. it was very recent. And this is a story that, that could help so many others. I mean, there's a lot of people struggling, deciding of whether they should come out to their friends and family, how they should do it, and, and that kind of thing. And I think more stories that show examples of how people have done it can only help. Mm -hmm. So if you could just talk about your experience growing up and, and coming out to your family and friends, uh, I think that would be very helpful. I um, I struggled with it big time, you know, accepting that I was gay. I spent many years praying for to be changed. Uh, I spent many years sort of bargaining with higher power or God to not let this be true. And in, you know, I went through high school and college and I was in the closet. And shortly after I, I graduated from college, it started to really intensify. And I kind of went into a, a deep, dark depression about it. And I realized that I just have to accept this. And I told a friend of mine, an old, co you know, a college friend of mine, um, who was actually gay and was had been out all through college. I had a lot of gay friends in college, so mm -hmm. it would have been very easy for me to come out because I was involved in theater. And and I, it just goes to show you, you can be around every gay person in the world mm -hmm. 
and the struggle and internal uh, struggle that you have is personal. Everyone's coming out story is different. It doesn't matter how many representations on TV or movies we see of gay people. The decision to come out is still a very personal one because we live in a society still that it's not easy to do. Um, and, you know, I had no reason to believe that I would be rejected by my family um, or anything like that. It just, I just wasn't willing to accept it at the time. So I, I told him, you know, I, it's just so crazy because the reason why I told this friend is because he had had a, we had done a show in the summer of 1991 and he had a friend who had come to the cast party afterward, was talking to this guy. I remember in the kitchen over, we were having beers or something and, and I was really relating to him. And about a few months later, my friend said to me, you're never going to believe this. The guy that you were talking to at the party came out to me. So I was like, oh, because we were talking about football and baseball and sports. And I thought, wait a second, that guy just said that he was gay. So just told you that he was gay. And so I, you know, for my my thing was, oh, well, if this person who could easily, I, I, I didn't know back then and all the all my gay friends in theater didn't talk about baseball and football and all, all this stuff. And so my friend so I said to him, I, you know, I remember the night very specifically, I, I said to him, I said, you know, your friend that was at the party and you said came out, I said, I'm just like him. And he was like, what? I'm gay, just like him. And so that's how I came out. Uh, and then I came out to testing the waters with other friends over the next few months. I never really, <laughs> the joke in my family is that I never really officially came out to my parents because at the same time that I was coming out, uh, my younger brother was dealing with the same issues. And he was actually in school in Boston University. And he had heard from a mutual friend of ours that I had come out and he was uh, actually struggling with it a lot worse. And my parents had to go up and visit him and because he was in a, in a dark place. And my parents went to visit him at, up in Boston University and he outed me. He said, well, you know, Pete, Pete's gay too. So because he did it for me, I've never officially... <laughs> <laughs> I've never officially said those words to my parents, although uh, I think uh, they, they've long known. Danny's sitting right next to me, and he's just like, yeah, they knew. <laughs> Obviously, I want to know how they responded, but also, did anybody that you've told, were they shocked? Were they surprised? None of them knew. It was not, nobody expected that I was gay, or partly because it would have been so easy for me to be out. Yeah, I was involved with so much theater and, and the theater people in college, and it was just like, why would you, why would you even be in the closet around all these people? Yeah. I was totally honest with you. I was scared to death to be physically intimate with anybody, woman, a, a woman or a man. And so because of that fear, the closet, it was just easier to stay in the closet. And how did your parents respond to both of the information that they got? Amazing. You know, they, it was it was an adjustment for them at first, you know, all of their expectations about, you know, children and grandchildren. And, you know, you expect your kids to, I think everyone just expects that their kids are going to be, well, maybe not today, but back then, uh, expect that their kids are, are, the assumption is they're straight and they're just going to get married someday and give you grandchildren. Um, so after their initial growing pains through learning about us both being gay, they got active. They joined PFLAG in uh, Bergen, in Bergen County, New Jersey. They were part of uh, spearheading putting up billboards of, of accepting your you know gay kids in Hackensack. I remember on, off of Route 80, they marched in the uh, they would march with PFLAG in the Gay Pride Parade. I used to say I wrote a play called Andrew Reaches the Other Side, which is basically semi autobiographical about my uh, coming out story. And there's a line in the play where the character says, because the parents are just these, they become these rabid activists for their son and whatever. And, and the character just says, you know, I just, I, my, my parents are gayer than I am. You know, I, <laughs> it's annoying me that why do they have to be gayer than me? You were blessed. Very much so. 
Very much so. Thank you for sharing that story. I think it's it's going to help somebody out there. Yeah, I th- you know, and you know, the Dan Savage thing, it gets better. Totally true. Totally, totally, totally true. It gets better. Now, there there might be people who are in the closet or who, who are in a situation right now where they just, they can't. They're dependent on their parents and they know for a fact that maybe their parents or their families would reject them. And so it's not easy. It's that That's not an easy situation. Um, for anybody. And so unless you're living to me, you know, this whole thing about outing people, unless you're like really deliberately living a hypocritical life where you're a politician or somebody like that who is enacting laws that are anti-gay or, or anti-LGBTQ uh, plus, um, and you happen to be in that community, it's everyone's individual j- journey to decide when they are comfortable enough and um, willing to dip their toe out of the closet. In terms of the Asian community, the African-American community, generally there's a very strong stigma towards being homosexual. So, In the Asian, Asian-American community, uh, is it cultural or religious or is it a combination? I'm not really religious, but right. I think it's cultural. Okay. That's just like my opinion on that. It could be a combination of both. Mm-hmm. It could go the same way with the African-American community as well. I think it's a combination. Oh, yeah. It might be more religious on that side. Yeah. I think it's probably a big combination of religion and and the idea of masculinity and yeah. and what it means to be a man. The first iteration of our Subway Baby it was a personal essay by you. And how did I get into the New York Times? Or did you write directly for it? Did you submit it? Okay, so this this everything that has happened, the, like the book and uh, all the stuff that's happened, happened because of this piece that I wrote for the New York Times in 2013. So I was approached. So we were we were living in a really small, dumpy one bedroom, the three of us. It was an apartment that I had since 1994. So I was in that apartment for 18 years. And as a family, we were in it for 12 years. And it was a small one bedroom. And Kevin had the bedroom to himself. And Danny and I had the living room, almost like a studio apartment. But the building was old. It was smelly. It was falling apart. We we kept saying we're going to die in this building because it's just going to collapse. <laughs> it's just going to collapse on us one day while we're sleeping. So we had an opportunity to move. And a friend of a friend needed an apartment. And so she came to look at it and she's, we were able to sort of transfer the lease into her name. And she was a writer. Her name's, her name's Kathy Chung. I think I'm pronouncing her last name right. Look her up. Her books are amazing. And she was writing a couple of weeks later, she was writing a piece for the New York Times and was talking to the editor. I had no idea about any of this. And she had mentioned the story about moving into our or looking for an apartment in New York and moving to our old apartment. And she told the editor our family story. She wrote me an email and said, the editor would be really would really love to talk to you and wants to know if you might be interested in writing something. I said, of course. New York Times? What am I going to say? No. <laughs> um, although I almost did say no because I really didn't think I was up to up to it and the caliber of writing that they would require. So I, I was very intimidated by that. So I, I wrote, I sent it in. I didn't hear anything. That was in like November of 2012. I didn't really hear anything for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I was like, am I going to get notes? Am I going to get edits? What What's going to happen? You're in advertising. You know how long <laughs> stuff like that takes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So about five, three, three or four days before they're going to publish, I get an email from her, from the editor saying, uh, here are my comments. Here's a contract. We're going to publish February 28th. And it was like three days before then. And I was like, oh my God, what, what's going on? Like, And so I, I, I accepted a lot of the edits and waited for it to come out. I was at work 
where we worked together when the article came out. And within an hour, I had to go to my supervisor and say, I need to go home because I was inundated with media requests. It had gone, the article had gone viral. It was getting shared everywhere. And so from that, the editor at uh, Dial, Penguin Random House, reached out to me and said, "Would you know? have you ever thought about writing a children's picture book for this story? So that's how that's how everything everything that's happened with the story since 2012 is because we moved and the wow. and the woman who took over our apartment shared our story with a New York Times editor. It's just destiny. It's destiny. That's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it is crazy. So who would play Danny in, in this hypothetical movie? Well, I I always thought Jake Gyllenhaal could play Danny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, Zachary right. Quint- Zachary Quinto, uh, Quinto is am I, am I am I pronouncing his name right? He could play Danny. Yeah, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of actors who are of that age, like in their early 30s. Like the, all the actors I'm mentioning would have been perfect maybe five to ten years ago. You know, you know, acting is makeup. You just yeah, you know, anybody you can do it. Anybody can do it. And on your website, <laughs> you have clips from back then, a news clip. There was a young Kaidi Tong there, and. <laughs> There's a filter that makes <laughs> makes you into a woman. I think I could put that. So I lo- <laughs> I've actually looked her up a few times in Google to see how old she is. Do you know how old she is? Uh, I'm guessing 62. I, I think she's in her 70s. Oh, wow. And she's, she's one of the first... I think she is the first Asian female Asian woman anchor in the country. If I'm not, if I'm remembering correctly, Google her name and look it up. She's she's like pioneer. She paved the way for Connie Chung. Yes, yeah, and, and Julie Chen, and and uh, um, yeah, I think, and she's still doing the news. Yeah, and she yeah. still looks like she did 30 years ago. Yeah, it's it's the Asian thing. It's the Asian. <laughs> my mom looks young, and she's she's in her 60s. Oh, I need some of that blood. <laughs> I'm aging so fast. I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, make it stop. So Pete, I really appreciate you getting on. Uh, I know you're busy. Uh, you got a lot going on and you, know, you shared a lot of sensitive stuff. So I really appreciate it. I want to give you the floor here for the last segment. Communicate with the audience on your, your next steps. Pandemic has put a lot of stuff on hold um, or slowed things down. So right now, the you know the book is out. It came out September 15th. It's called Our Subway Baby. It's basically the story uh, we just told. It's written in first person. I write it as a uh, um, sort of address the book written to our son as, a, as an infant. And uh, anybody wants to get a copy of it, they can go to uh, OurSubwayBaby.com. And there are a bunch of links on there for uh, all kinds of various bookstores. There's an audiobook available which, uh, believe it or not, I've not heard. I've narrated the audiobook, but I, I've only heard the sample. I've not heard the whole thing. Uh, there's an ebook. And it's in a ton of libraries. So if you can't afford to buy a book, you can borrow it from your local library. And if it's not in your local library, um, ask them to get it. I, I don't have any plays coming up right now. In some weird way, I was supposed to last year. In 2019, I was talking with a director and a producer to we were going to try to get a new play of mine up in 2020. And it didn't happen. And I'm really glad it didn't happen because we would have had to scrap the whole production because of the pandemic. So in some ways, that was a blessing in disguise that it didn't happen. And so maybe we'll regroup when the the pandemic's over to get that that play produced. And that's about it. You know, there there might be, uh, you know, keep an eye on my uh, website, join my mailing list. Um, There might be, I don't send out a lot of stuff. I send out something maybe like once every three months. 
So you're not going to be inundated with emails, but it's a way to keep up to date if there ever is any kind of other project coming up related to the story, whether film, TV, or, or theater. And your website's Pete Mercurio, M-E-R-C-U-R-I-O. Yeah, it's actually Peter Mercurio. Oh, it's Peter. Yeah, okay. yeah. Even though I go by Pete, it, the yeah. official website is PeterMercurio.com. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really had a great time just listening to your story and having you on. So Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Peace.